0: This is not in my notes at all. Jesus was not moved by needs, N E E D S. He didn't react to the needs. The Lord taught me this a long time ago. He says, When you run around putting out fires, reacting to needs, you know who's leading you? The one that started the fire. Because he's directing where you go by the fires that you, he starts in your life. No, Jesus was led by the Spirit. And he was not released to leave where he was and to go and, and, and minister to Lazarus. But see, when you follow the Lord, it's never too late, even though in the natural it's too late. Because when Mary and Martha came and said, but Master, it's too late. He said, you don't understand. I am the resurrection. She said, no, I know there's a re- No, 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 you don't understand. I am the resurrection. The resurrection just showed up. And they got their brother brought back to them. I have no idea why I got off on that, but somebody needed to hear that, and maybe I didn't the one that needed to hear. It. Praise the Lord. So, in this year to come, we'll talk more about it as we get into the year. We're not going to the series, we're going to change the series, but the focus is the same. We're going to learn how together to follow Jesus. We're going to learn how together to follow Jesus. And you, how can you get off track if you're following Jesus? And life is going to become more complicated, there are going to be things that are more confusing out there, but if our eyes are on Him, we won't be confused, won't be complicated, and we will get through to the end. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for all that You are doing in our lives, all that You have done, and all that You are planning to do. Father, this morning You know where each and every person is that is present in this room and is within the sound of my voice. You know where each one of us is, and you know the needs that are in each one of our lives. And my prayer this morning, Father, is that I open my heart and my mouth to speak forth what I know you put in my heart, that you will take the living Word of God and you will breathe it into our hearts. For Jesus said, my words are spirit and they are life. And so, Father, breathe on this Word, breathe the breath of life. And open the eyes of our understanding to see the hope of your calling. Open our ears to hear and our hearts to grasp what you have prepared for those who love you. And we thank you for that in advance. In Jesus' name, amen and amen. Last week we began to talk about... Uh, uh, what manner of love. So First John chapter 3, verse 1 is our signature scripture, and, and this is really just a two-part message, which is unusual for me, although, although Christmas Eve will kind of be in, lo- in line with this. We've been talking uh, for quite a while now on, on following Jesus, and what Jesus said to do to follow Him was you had to deny, deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow Him. And a number of weeks ago we talked about, well, well, we can't really do that if you don't know who it is you're following. And we talked several weeks ago about who this Jesus is that's called us to follow him and what it means to give up everything to follow him. And this kind of fits in the vein of that, but we're going to talk about what kind of love. And this is a time of year when it is all about the love of God. And of course the love of God is throughout the year, but at Christmas we're talking about the gift of love that he gave to the world. So this is what John says. This is the John that knew Jesus better than anybody during his earthly ministry. Behold, that word means look, see, and we're here to do that this morning. It doesn't mean take a casual look at, but it requires some effort on our part to really engage with this. Behold what manner, the lo- the, what manner of love the Father has bestowed upon us that we should be called children of God, We'll just stop right there. What we talked about last week is when he's talking about what manner of love. The Greek word for manner there, what manner, refers to a foreign country. So what John is saying here is the love that God has shown for us is a foreign type of love. And we talked last week about if you... if you, And I've had, we've done this twice in the last year. We've been in two different foreign countries, although one of them was England, and it wasn't... You know, they, they sort of speak our language, although their attitude is we don't quite speak their language since they were here first. Uh, but they have customs that are different. But if you go into... But we were in Mexico in, in October for our, our, one of our son's weddings, and, and I've been in Mexico a number of times in the mission field and when you go there, you find out there's the, you're in a foreign land. And so you don't speak the language. It's a different language. They have different customs. And I shared with you last week, one of the, the guy was my physical therapist, when I broke my wrist, he, was, uh, he, he lived in France for a while. And at one point, we thought we were going over to Paris. And he said, if you do that and go in a restaurant, and you go into that restaurant, and you happen to meet the owner, of the, look him right in the eye or her right in the eye, and make sure you say bonjour or bonsoir, whatever it is, you speak to them and you greet them because in, in France, if you don't do that, it's an insult. Well, in the United States, that's no insult at all. But if you don't know that custom, you, can, you don't understand why people are looking at you funny, or throwing food at you or don't give you a seat in the restaurant, because you don't understand the customs of that foreign land. And so what, Paul, what John is saying here is this love that God has bestowed upon us is, is of a foreign type of nature which means you cannot understand this love by by applying love that we know in this world to it. It's a foreign type of love. Because it's foreign, it doesn't speak the same language, it doesn't respond the same way, it doesn't have the same thoughts and the same attitudes. So that's kind of our foundation. And with that as a foundation, we went and looked at John 3.16 which is perhaps the most famous verse in the Bible. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. And we broke that down last week because we were looking last week at this love that God has displayed towards us is what we celebrate at Christmas. It's why we give gifts because we're we're responding to what God did. God first gave. He gave a gift to us. And the reason we're looking at this gift that God gave to us is it gives us an insight into what this foreign type of love is that God gave to us and what God's love that he has for us. And so last time we looked at what's called the incarnation, which is the theological term for what the Bible says, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we talked about, we broke this verse down. By these various elements, and what we're talking about is is to begin to get a grasp of what God did when He when His sons stepped out of heaven to become a little baby, born in a manger, in a stable, in Bethlehem. We talked about this the glory of this God the glory that He had with the Father before the foundation of the world, that everything that exists was formed by Him and through Him. We looked at John chapter 1 and talks about everything that was made was made by Him and through Him. And He came unto His own and His own did not recognize Him. Imagine that. The Creator, the, the very agent by which God the Father created the universe, gave all of that up, all of His privileges, all His rights up, all His glory up, to come to this earth as a human being. You and I will never begin to understand the enormity of that step down until we get to heaven and we begin to see what heaven's like. But we took some peeks into it because there are several places in the scriptures that gives us little insights into what it's like. And we're going to talk again this morning about one of those insights that it gives us. But not just to come to the earth and become a man. We just come here and just show up in kingly robes and with a... You, know, you, you understand... That, that, that he didn't walk around with a halo over his head. We've all seen those pictures, but he didn't have... Because if he had a halo over his head, everybody would have known who he was. All right? They didn't know who he was until he was released at age 30 to, to begin his public ministry. He gave all of that up. Not just to come to earth as a human being, but to be conceived just as you were in a woman's womb. He carried... For nine months, and to come forth and be born through the same process you and I were born through. And the very first thing he laid in, other than his mother's arms, was a feeding trough in a stable in Bethlehem. What kind of love would step out and give that up for us? Well, today we're going to begin to talk about that's not the end of the story, that's the beginning of the story. This is a little bit of an unusual Christmas message. But what the message is about is the real evidence of His love for us is not just that He came here, but it's what He came here to do. He came here to die. And not just to die, but to die for you and me. So the other way to understand or grasp the enormity of this strange manner of love is to see what He did for us when He walked on this earth, and especially as He gave Himself up to be beaten, scourged, and crucified, and died. That's what we're going to talk about this week. But to do that, because virtually every one of you here knows that. That verse, put that back up, John 3.16. There's a key word in there, and it's a two-letter word, so. Because without the word so, that's a statement of theological fact. God loved the world and gave His only begotten Son. But the word so changes the whole meaning of that first sentence, and it tells us the measure of God's love is in the understanding that He gave His begotten Son to us. So we're not just looking to come away with more to, to, to reinforce the information we have. We want this to touch our hearts and to move our hearts with the heart that God has for you. So to do that, we've got to change our perspective on what we know. Because most of what we do when we understand this Christmas story, and then of course we're really talking about Easter too, that Christ died for us and paid for our sins. And we see it and we know that it's the love of God that did that for us. But the measure, the measure of it is is understanding the enormity of what He did. We all know the fact. We looked last week at the enormity that He stepped out of heaven to become a human being born as a baby. We just talked about that. But today we're going to talk about the enormity that this holy man who lived on this earth for 33 and a half years without ever sinning would take our sins upon him, the world's sin, and pay for it with his own suffering, and his own blood, and his own death. But to do that, as I said a few minutes ago, we have to change our, our perspective, and all this is in the notes you can, you can download. Because I really, if I began to look at this, this began to help me understand for myself. And it starts with, the, the problem is, is how we see ourselves as compared to how we see God. And most of us know that, well, let's see if I, most of us know that, um, that, that God's holy and we're not. Right? We all know that, okay? But we don't know what that really means, because we're so used to looking at it from our perspective what we think god is and what we think we are and what i've discovered in my life is that's what keeps me back from knowing the true depth and power of his love for us and you'll you'll see that as we walk this out together so let's look at that we know that god is holy though we really don't know what that means. We talked a little bit about that last week. So to us, by and large, what we think that means that God is holy is that He's better than we are. He's a lot better than we are. He's perfect. He's much better than we are. All right, that's how we see Him. Okay? And we evaluate ourselves by comparing ourselves with each other or with what we think God's like. So everything we know about God in terms of until we get done with what I'm going to talk about is based on what we understand about God and what we understand about ourselves. See, that, that point of view is what interfered with my receiving Christ for years. Because unlike some of you, I was a good sinner. And I don't mean by that I sinned well. I was a good person. And I was a lawyer too and still a good person. That's good. My wife raised her hand. That's good to hear. (laughs) I didn't cheat on my wife. I didn't cheat on my taxes. I was honest, essentially, best I knew. I was a good person. I really was. So I'd look at you guys and say, I know why you need to get saved, but I'm I'm fine. because I didn't know why I needed. But here's the issue. I was comparing myself to you. In this room right now, there are some of you that are feeling warm physically. Some of you may be feeling cold. Some of you may be asleep (laughs) and not feeling anything. (laughs) So my point is, but there's one temperature. And how you experience that temperature base is based on what your body is, heat, your body temperature is in relation to it. And the same is true with righteousness and holiness. So when we compare, evaluate who we are by comparing ourselves with where other people are, you'll, if you hang out with rotten people, you'll feel good about yourself. All right? But you ever get around people that are just, you know, boy, every word out of their mouth is just love. They're the most generous, wonderful, giving people you want. And you feel like you're a piece of junk because you're comparing yourself to them. And then we have some image of what God's like. God's holy. He's good. He's wonderful. He's perfect. And then we compare ourselves with Him and compare ourselves with one another and say, well, you know, He's he's really good. But that's not what the Bible teaches us. And see, this, is, this becomes an obstacle in truly receiving how much God loves you. Because you can't truly receive how much God loves you until you see the enormity of what He's done for you. And that's what we're going to look at today. Our human conscience guides us in evaluating ourselves and others. So if nothing but bother me, I think I'm doing well but if the same thing is you're doing wrong, it bothers me. Ever notice that? You get bothered by what other people do, but when you do the same thing, it doesn't bother you. In this view, now listen carefully, this is so important. In this view that we have, God sent His Son and His Spirit to help us meet up to that standard that we think He expects of us so our and we may not even be conscious we think this way but it's so important to uncover this because it's what's keeping us from realizing and experiencing the depth of his love for us so what we think god did when he sent his son is god so loved us that he sent his only begotten son is he sent his son because we we, we can't we can't measure up We're, we we always fall short so jesus died for us to give us grace and the holy spirit's given us so that we can now measure up So in that view, the Holy Spirit's been given to us and the Word of God's been given to us to help us do what we can't do, which is to make ourselves better people. And the ultimate goal of that, although we would never think so, is to get to the point where we finally say, okay, I got there and now I don't need need Him anymore because now I've arrived at that place that I think I need to be. I'm better than you are. Everybody following me on this? It's, 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 a, it's a different way of thinking but it's the way we think by and large but it's a, it's a block to experiencing the depth of his love because all we think he's done is Jesus came and died for us to help us so we can be improved versions of who we were before we received him and so in that view we're trying to help him so we need his help so that we can be better people better Christians But this is not what the Bible teaches us of who we are or who God is. And here's the problem. This wrong perspective keeps us from receiving the fullness of the gift of love that God has given us in Christ. So we have to change our perspective. And here's what we have to do to do it. The place where we know is we've got to find out... See, we're looking at this from how we see God and how we see ourselves. But what the Bible does is the Bible opens the window so we can now understand how God sees us and what He's really like. And that's a completely different perspective. And, but it's critical that we learn to look that way at who He is and look that way at how He sees us. So that's what we're going to do today. We can only find out how God sees us and who He is through the Word that He's given to us. I was sharing with somebody this week why I believe the Bible. Well, I believe it now because it works. But the reason I decided to believe, it, it's a decision to make. Because the Bible teaches us that we understand these things by faith, not by reason. I have to understand how hard that was for me. Because I'm male, first of all, which means I think linearly. Straight lines. (laughs) All right? My training is as a lawyer. That's a logical training. I was a philosophy major in college, and I I think in outlines. scary. Especially in a marriage. (laughs) Because she doesn't think in outlines. (laughs) I'm still trying to figure out after 52 years how she does think, but I just love her and accept her the way she does think, and it's just... And I learned to value that because she see. Th- I don't, I'm getting off track here. So for me, to not analyze this Bible, I, I struggled until God spoke to me. I when we and I we left. I, I resigned from the law practice in Boston in a big firm, moved my family halfway across the country to some place I'd never heard of called Tulsa, Oklahoma. And I wonder, God. What did I do wrong? I'm, I was raised by the ocean. They have no water here. And they, well, they do. They call it lakes, but they made it, and it doesn't move. Tulsa in a place called the Green Country. Green. <laughs> There's two hills and one tree. Well, that's an exaggeration. But that's how it looked like me. What did I do wrong? And I remember the first six months of being in Bible school, I struggled, I suffered. It was like, God, I get home and I, from class and I sit on that couch and I say, I'm miserable, and yet we left everything to come out here and do this. And finally, if you do this with God, finally, I, just, I drew a line and said, God, I've got to have an answer. I can't do this. And I got quiet, sat at the end of that couch with my Bible, and God spoke to me. He says, because you're reading that book like a lawyer. And immediately knew what he meant. Because a lawyer's trained to read a document to find out what's wrong with it even the ones I'd write because I want to make sure there are no loopholes in it. And he said, you have to read it by faith, not by reason. And I made a decision that day, I'm going to believe everything that's in here and see what happens. And it completely turned my perspective around. And all that pressure and stuff just left. So we have to take this, and here is my reasoning, my simple reasoning. If God is real and He is, and he wants to communicate with us, and he does. He's got to give us something so we can understand him, what he wants, and not expect us to guess. My wife has been, we have relatives, let's put it that way. We have relatives that, that that what we believe in, who we are, confronts them. And so they'll want to debate with us about what, and they'll give us their opinion, as if we're going to give our opinion back. My opinion about God, what does that count for? I'm all over the place this morning. What? What is God? Doesn't impress by my opinion. I don't want to know. I want to know the truth. Because there's coming a day, a time when all of this goes away, and we will be face to face with what the truth and reality is. I want to know it now, when I can do something about it. Not play games and pick sick my head in the sand and find out later on, or get into some debate with you or me about what I think the truth is. That's got. That doesn't do anything. So I just chose this is the truth. And it changed my life. Well, I'm saying that because God, if He wants us to know what He's like, is going to give us some way to understand Him. And He has. It's called this Word. So we have to turn to the Word to find out what God wants to tell us about Himself. And what God wants to tell us about how He sees us. We're changing our perspective. All right. We saw a little bit of this last week when we looked at Isaiah chapter 6, which was, was the story of Isaiah the prophet, the, a very holy man by our standards. He was, he, he was extremely holy. He was, he was an, an intelligent person raised in, in the, among royalty. He may have even had royal blood in him. But he was a very holy man. And before God could release him into his ministry, he had a vision. Now we don't know whether he was physically taken there or it was a vision in his heart, but he was taken to the very throne room of God. And we read that last week. He said, I saw in the the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord high and lifted up on his throne and the train of his robe filled the temple. And when the voices spoke, the pillars of 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 the temple shook like this. And there were angels, their whole job was 24 hours a day, although there were no hours up there, continually circling around his head, singing, holy, holy, holy. And when I looked at him, I fell down, because I realized how holy he was, and I am a man of unclean lips, he said. So here's this holy man when he saw the pure holiness of God, saw who he was in relation to that pure holiness, and he fell down powerless, and said, I'm a man of unclean lips. Then the angels went over and took a coal off the fire of incense that burns, and touched it, purified his mouth. But he couldn't do that until he saw how unholy he was. He couldn't receive the grace God had for him, until by God's grace he saw how unholy he was, compared to God's perfect holiness. We sing Amazing Grace so often, and it's a wonderful song, but I, I, it, 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 so often we skip the second verse. Now the version people sing nowadays does have it. Amazing grace, so sweet the sound, that saved the wretch like me, I once was lost, but now found. I'm found, blind, but now I see. It was grace that taught my heart to fear, and grace my fear relieved. What was the fear from? When John Newton, who wrote those words, saw who he was in the sight of God, it brought fear into his heart because he saw how lost and hopeless he was. And that's what opened him up to receive the love and the grace. You can't fully receive God's grace and love until you see how utterly lost you were without Him. I think it's Peter writes in one of his letters, to whom much is forgiven, they love much. To whom little is forgiven, they love little. Well, much is forgiven, we just don't think much was forgiven because we didn't think we needed a lot to be forgiven. Well, with that change of perspective, let's go to Romans chapter 5 that was the introduction don't get nervous Patriots aren't playing today so no I'm just joking I'm just joking I want you to hear this we're going to read down through the the first ten verses and then we're going to go back and take this apart because this is something I've been meditating on on and off all year and what we're talking about is in here But if you don't have that background of what we've just talked about, you'll read through this and you'll say, yes, that's true, that's good. But this is powerful to communicate the love of God. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we also have access by faith into this grace in which we stand and rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but you also glory in tribulations, knowing that tribulation produces perseverance, 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 Character and character hope verse 5 now hope does not disappoint why? because the love of God that's the love of God for you the love of God has been has been poured out in our hearts by the Holy Spirit who has been given to us So we're not waiting for God to love us. We're not waiting for God's love to come down out of heaven for us. God's love was, when you received Christ, all of God's love for you was poured out into your hearts. You are right now, if you are in Christ, you are, are containing in your heart all the love that God has for you. You're just not experiencing it. So God's not the problem. Your understanding of it is. So now he's going to help us. Verse 6. This is what we're talking about. He's trying to help them receive the gift of love that's already been poured out in their hearts. And we're not walking in it, we're not experiencing it because we don't see yet what he did for us. So now he's going to begin to explain that. Verse 6. and I'm going to go through this and then I'm going to go back and break this down. For when we were still without strength in due time Christ died for the ungodly. For scarcely for a righteous man would one die, yet perhaps for a good one some would even dare to die. But God demonstrates His own love towards us in that while we were still sinners Christ died for us. Much more then now having been justified by His blood we shall be saved from wrath through Him. For if when we were enemies we were reconciled to God through the death of His Son. Much more, having been reconciled, we shall be saved by His life. Now, there are three basic things I want to look at in here. Go back to verse 6. For when we were still without strength. Now, we're looking at this from His perspective, not from ours. Now, we tend to read that when we were still without strength as we were weak. While we were still weak... In due time Christ died for us. But that is not what it says. To be without strength is not to be weak. To be without strength is to have no strength. No ability. None. Helpless. Hopeless. In fact in Ephesians Paul talking about the Gentiles said at one point you were without hope and without God, in this world that's utterly horrible to be without without hope means there is none so to be without strength is to have none helpless that, and what I get the image of is a newborn baby it's neat we get them here all the time you do that and I you see a little born baby now, that's the perfect picture of helplessness. They can do nothing for themselves. They're mini food processors. <laughs> goes in one end and it comes out the other. But think about that. The only thing they can do for themselves is breathe, that they need to sustain life. They can't feed themselves, they can't change themselves. When, they, when we first get them they can't turn over they can't, they can't move from their spot they absolutely are helpless they have to have somebody do something for them that's what that word means that was you and I before Christ oh but see here's the problem we weren't helpless the way we saw ourselves we can get ourselves to church we can read our Bible we can do things for ourselves I'm trying hard to be better But the way God sees it, for you to go from where you were to where He he is, you're utterly helpless. What changed my life was a verse in the Bible, which we'll look at later on, by faith. (laughs) Is that, that, because again, I said, I I was a good sinner. And I was reading through the, 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 um, I was reading through the, uh, the Sermon on the Mount. And I got to the verse where Jesus says, and be perfect as my father is perfect. And it hit me. Literally, the words out of my mouth. I can't be perfect. I can't do that. If I if he expects me to be perfect, I need somebody to save me. And I heard my own words. But it wasn't until I saw how what God expected. Because He's a holy God. He's absolutely holy. We looked at that last week. So, if he's absolutely holy, listen carefully, the only beings that can exist in his presence have to also be absolutely holy. Because any unholiness dies in his presence. That's why when God came down on Mount Sinai, several times he told Moses, Don't let anybody come up on the mountain because they'll die. It wasn't because he was angry. when we were still without strength, utterly helpless and hopeless. This is hard for us to accept because as long as we're trying to contribute to our own salvation, as long as we're still trying hard to get there, that means we've not yet accepted that we were without strength. We think we can contribute something. The other thing is in this verse, it says, while we were still without strength, the second thing is, in due time Christ died for the ungodly. Well, I'm glad He died for them, because I didn't, I wasn't ungodly. I went to church, I was a deacon in our church. I used to meet with the pastor to to help him. I went to him one day and he says, you know, you listen to everybody else, who sits and listens to you? I'll come in one hour a week before I go to work and I'll sit here you can tell me it will not leave this room you need somebody you can talk to I was a good person I wasn't one of you ungodly people been in church my whole life but it's not what's ungodly to us it's what's ungodly to him See, ungodly doesn't mean a bad person. We're renewing our minds this morning. Ungodly does not mean a bad person. It's infinitely more than that. Because the problem is we see sin the wrong way. We see sin as the things we do wrong. The things we do wrong, the words we say that are wrong, even the thoughts we have are wrong. Those are sinful, but that's not the root of sin. That's the fruit of the sin. The root of the sin is down in our heart and down in our nature. Jesus said, a good tree out of its nature produces good fruit, a bad tree out of its nature produces bad fruit. You can tell the tree by the fruit it produces. So the sin in our lives, the lying and stealing and all those are the extreme ones, but the bad will we had towards people, judgment of people, things we would say out of our mouth without even thinking to hurt people, that's just the fruit of the root, which is the problem. God sees the root. So we believe that by becoming godly, we, we believe that be, to become godly, all we have to do is control our ungodly behavior. So we try harder, you know. So today I come to the end of the day, Lord, I started today and I promised you I would tell the truth every time I opened my mouth. I promised you that I would be kind towards everybody and I did well until one o'clock in the afternoon. <laughs> and then I lost it, Lord. I'm sorry I fell short today. And that's kind of the image we have. So I, I was partly godly and partly ungodly today. Isn't that how we think? So we believe that we can become godly by trying to control and repress these fruits. And you'll hear me say this before. We believe that we can change the nature of a tree by changing the fruit. And so the example I'll often use is we used to have an apple tree in our front yard, and that that if, but a cider cider. And I could tell it was an apple tree because in the spring it produced apples. They were rotten because it was a bad tree. And I could tell it was a bad tree because the apples were rotten. But suppose I wanted it to be a pear tree you know what, I'm starting to go to church and I realize we're supposed to be pears and not apples. So I'm going to go to the grocery store and I'm going to buy a bunch of pears, a bunch of good deeds, and I'm going to glue them to the branches of my apple tree. And, and that's going to make me look like an apple tree. And we all know what's going to happen. The first time we get wind and rain and a storm, the, the pears are going to fall off the tree because I glued them on from the outside. They didn't come out of the nature of the tree. And the, 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 the sins of life that we'd committed came out of our nature. And we're going to look at that nature for a few minutes. God sees the problem in its very nature. And the, here's the problem. At our core, we were selfish and self-centered. At our core, we were rebellious. Say, so I wasn't rebellious. Well, did you, did, you, did you love God with all your heart? Is every decision you made based on what was going to give glory to Him or did you have your own will that you wanted to assert your own way? God can't tell me what I'm doing. That's rebellion. It started in the garden. What it really is is when I'm going to assert my will what I'm saying is I'm king of my own dominion. Me. God's king of his dominion and I've got my own kingdom and I'm king of that kingdom that's rebellion and it's in very subtle ways I have my rights well the question I have is did you create yourself? you know where ownership comes from? ownership comes by creation the car I drive was made by General Motors when it was created General Motors owned the car and the the title was passed from General Motors to the dealership, and on down. There's a title deed for you, by the creator of you, and your name's not on it. Not only did he create you, he brought you back from your rebellion. But we're looking at the rebellion, first of all. Rebellion is when we take God's word. God gives us His word, and listen carefully. We exercise our own, our own, our own independent judgment about what God said. Well, I'm not sure I agree with that. It's God. <laughs> All authority is His, and I'm going to question Him. That's rebellion. So, it's not so much the lying, it's the inner th- attitudes of the heart towards God who created us for His glory, for His pleasure, not for ours, for His. That's how we were ungodly in His sight. And here's the problem we can't change our nature by ourselves because it's our nature. And the harder you try to change your nature, the more you reinforce you're doing it for yourself. <laughs> i got to change my nature because I don't measure up to God and I want God to love me and think good of me. That's still based on me. I don't want to go to hell. That's still based on me. I don't want to, I don't want to, I don't want to. This is what God threw to me this summer. The Spirit of God just opened my heart and says, You don't really love Him. So what do you mean I don't love him? I've given all kinds. You don't really love him because everything you're still doing is what he's going to think of you. And I broke. My God, I'm still selfish. She already knew that. I didn't have to pray. I just had to ask her. But when I did that, my heart opened up to receive his love at a level I've never received it before. I was so joyous, so bounding with joy, I felt a burden lift off of me at looking how rotten I was. (laughs) Behold what foreign type of love this is. And it takes God's grace so that we can even begin to see that. Verse 8. But God demonstrates His own love towards us. His own love towards us. His foreign type of love towards us. He demonstrates it. That's not past tense. That's a tense in the Greek that's continuous. He demonstrates His own love towards us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Remember, He did this for us before we ever came to Him. He did for this over 2,000 years before you came to Him. In fact, the Bible says... In Ephesians, that God already did this in mind before the foundation of the world. Because He knew what you'd do. He knew how ungodly you'd be in me. Let's go down to verse 10. So we've seen that, 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 um, we've seen that first of all, we were without hope. We've seen secondly, or without strength. We've seen secondly that how ungodly we were. Now we're going to look at the third thing, verse 10. This is even harder to grasp. For if while we were enemies we were reconciled to God through the death of His Son. How much more being reconciled, we should be saved by His life. Now we're looking at how God sees us, not how we see ourselves. Because i read this, how was I ever your enemy? I didn't protest against you. I didn't kill prophets. I didn't say nasty things. I believe in you. How could I be your enemy? But I'm looking at it from my perspective of what I think that means. Not what God says it means and how He sees what I'm doing. So what does it mean that we're His enemy? We were His enemies. Well, the word enemies is an interesting word in the Greek. It means an adversary. It means one whose actions and attitudes are adverse to someone else. One who opposes another. And there's an implication of hatred in there. And in order to understand this, you've got to understand something else. We're not going to look there, but Luke 10, 19 says, Behold, I give you authority over Satan and all the power of the enemy. So there God declares that Satan is his enemy. He's, he's in place; places called the adversary. So in any way that we cooperate with Satan, in any way that we cooperate with Satan, we're cooperating and participating as an enemy of God because he's opposed to the kingdom of God. Well, the Bible teaches us one of the ways that to oppose the kingdom of God is unbelief. Wait a minute, unbelief? I can understand swearing, lying, cheating. I can understand blasphemy, but simply unbelief? The Bible calls that a sin. Because what is unbelief saying? It's saying God can't be trusted. It's saying in deciding what I can trust and not trust when God's there to, 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 to deliver, save. Well, I've decided that I, I've decided independent judgment. I've decided whether I can trust God. When we get to heaven and see those things, we're going to go. What was I thinking? Let's think of the attitude. I'm deciding. John, with all my power and glory and majesty and knowledge, I'm deciding whether God's worthy to be trusted or not. That's ridiculous. That's what unbelief is. In God's eyes. Jesus, when when the disciples would do things, which like Peter, one of my favorite stories, where Peter's walked on the water. <laughs> actually, he walked on the word "come," but we'll talk about that later. He walked on the water. The other eleven sitting in a boat, holding on to each other. Peter's out of the water, out on the water to come to Jesus, and he's doing it. He said he actually walked on water. And before we look down our nose at Peter. I've heard this said before, when they have a roll call in heaven of people that have walked on water, it won't take long to answer it. Some of you get that on the way home. And then Peter got his eyes off of Jesus and got his eyes on the wind and the waves and he he, he began to sink. I love that. How do you begin to sink? (laughs) If I step out in a pond there, I don't begin to sink. I go, whoa, right down. And Jesus catches him. It means he's right there, even when you fail, and brought back to the boat. And Jesus said to Peter, "Wow, Peter, look, you tried hard. You did something the other eleven didn't. You stepped out of the boat to come to me. Wow, I'm so proud of you." No, that's not what he said at all. He rebuked him. He wasn't angry at him. He said, "Why did you doubt? You were doing it. You were. He, he could not." this is a little insight he couldn't comprehend unbelief he's really saying how how could you doubt I don't understand it why because he knows the father he knows how trustworthy and reliable he is he is the word unbelief Enemies. So we were adverse to him. I've got to move on. Colossians 1, verse 21 says, When we were alienated from him, once you were alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works, yet now he's reconciled us. So, from God's perspective, not ours, we were his enemies because we opposed him. I'll give you another verse James 4, 4. Adulterers and adulteresses. Well, that's a good way to start out. But he's talking about spiritual adultery. Now, what is adultery? Adultery is when you break a covenant you've made with your spouse. And in that covenant, you have vowed before God that that is the only person with whom you will experience sexual intimacy and pleasure and have that need and desire satisfied and met only with that person. So spiritual adultery is when we've broken our covenant with God and we're now having other sources to meet our needs and to be the source of our pleasure. God sees that as adultery. Oh, getting quiet in this Presbyterian church. And here's what it is. Don't you know, like we ought to know this, that friendship with the world is an enmity with God. It doesn't mean we're not to be in the world and love people, but but when the world is the source of our meeting our needs, well, we have to be approved and accepted by the world. We've made ourselves His enemy. I don't know about you, but I'm beginning to see I need some grace. (laughs) Ephesians 2. I just want you to see this from several angles. Ephesians 2 verse 1 through 3 and you now he was made alive is not in the original language and you were dead in your trespasses and sins you talk about it, you can't get any more hopeless or helpless than a corpse right and God's saying you are corpses spiritually in in your sins and trespasses, in which you once walked according to the course of this world, the way the world goes, according to the prince of the power of the air, that's Satan, and the spirit that now works in the sons of disobedience. This is how God used to see us. Among whom we also conducted ourselves in the lust of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath. The issue was our nature. We're going to look at a few minutes that start in verse 4. But to do this, let's go back to Romans 5. We're going to come back here. Romans 5. So that's how God saw us. That's who we were before we came to Christ. Verse 8. While we're in this condition, but God demonstrates His own Love towards us. So while we were like that, ungodly, helpless, rebellious, his enemies. Just take his enemies. While we were his enemies, God did what we talked about last week. He sent his precious holy son, the most precious part of him there was. And he sent him to be humbled as a baby to grow up with the purpose of the right time at the appointed time to submit himself into the hands of ungodly men, to be spit upon, to be mocked by both Roman officers and by the, by the Jewish guards. And when that was done, to go through the most horrible beating that man has ever come up with, a scourging. Most men didn't survive it. And when that was done, to be nailed on a cross, a death that normally took two to three days of absolute horrible agony. And if that wasn't enough, on that cross, God took your sin, my sin, the sin of all the world, even those He knew would never receive Him. He took that sin upon Himself and bore the full brunt Of God's wrath and anger for our rebellion, our ungodliness, our pride. He bore it for us. And then even more. When he died like that, he was taken into hell. And now he had to endure Satan's torment for three days. Until God came and raised him from the dead. And brought him back to life. Behold... What manner of love? What strange kind of love is this? That God would do this. And He didn't just do it so we could get into heaven. That's nice if that's all it is. If He didn't just do it so we don't have to go to hell, that's really nice if that's all it is. But it's infinitely more. He did it. 2 Corinthians says, He who knew no sin, verse 21. 2 Corinthians 5, 21 says, He who knew no sin became sin. He took our sin so that we might be given His righteousness. Why would He do that? Because we have to have His righteousness in order to go into the presence of a holy God and stand before a holy God. But not just that, he did it so we could now become sons and daughters. He shared, he he went through all this suffering for such ungodly rebellious people as we now understand we are so that he could share his sonship with such as us. Behold, what kind of foreign love is this? Let's go to Romans Ephesians chapter 2, quickly, go back there. And then there's one more place we're going to go. We're going to pick up, having seen what our wrath was against our nature. But God who is rich in mercy, God, for, to say God's rich in anything is saying a whole lot. God's rich in mercy. He doesn't just have it, He's rich in it. See, rich depends on what you already have. We've been in foreign countries where to be rich means you've got a bicycle because it depends on who you're with. On Wall Street, a bicycle just means you're a delivery guy that can take papers around. It doesn't mean you're rich. So what is, God, what is it that God has that's, that He's rich in? It's mercy. But God, who is rich in mercy, because of His great love with which He loved us, I love the amplified of us, because of and in order to satisfy the great and intense love with which He loved us. This is what motivated him. This is that foreign type of love. Even when we were dead in our sins, he made us alive together with Christ by grace, you've been saved. And he raised us up together and made us sit together in heavenly places in Christ, right next to the Father. That in the ages to come, he might share the exceeding riches of his grace and kindness towards us. Let's go to Matthew 5. And now we're going to show a contrast that Jesus gives. of what kind of foreign love this is. Matthew chapter 5. We're going to start in verse 43. This is about the middle of the Sermon on the Mount. And I've preached this before, but we're going to look at it from a different perspective. You heard it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. That's kind of what the world says. But I say to you, love your enemies. Remember we just heard about ourselves? We were his enemies. But I say to you, love your enemies... Bless those who curse you. Do good to those who hate you. And pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you. So it starts with your enemies. Love them. And that doesn't mean just sit in your chair and love them. Love does something. Bless those or do good to those who curse you. What kind of love is this? Do good to those who hate you. Pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute The other people may be your enemy just because of who they are. But we're talking about people who ch- picked you out and out of spite for you chose to use you and persecute you. Some of you know what that's like. And what are we supposed to do? Pray for them. Oh yeah, I'm going to pray for them alright. God... Pour your wrath out on them. Get them. Let them get what they deserve. Oh, be careful. Do I really want God meeting out what we deserve? Because you see, God's no respecter of persons because if I get God to pour out on them what they deserve, He may well pour out on me what I deserve. And I don't want what I deserve. But why? What's behind all this? Verse 45 that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven in other words that's how God the Father has treated us we were his enemies we cursed him I never cursed him did you ever take the Lord's name in vain no I never did did you ever say God when you weren't really worshipping him in vain doesn't mean swearing it means with nothing behind it oh God that's in vain unless you're really calling on Him. So all of these apply to us. We've been His enemy. We've cursed Him. We've done evil. We've just seen some of that. And what has He done? He's blessed us. He's loved us in the most ultimate way. But look, go on and read. For He makes the sun to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the just and the unjust. For if you just love those who love you, what reward have you? He's now comparing this strange manner of love with the love we've understood in the world. Because in the world what we do is we love those that can love us back. We love those that are either can do something, have done something back for us, or because we see some value in them. But we don't love people that we don't see some loveliness in. We don't love unlovely people. In fact, we want to get them. They deserve it. Get, let them get what they deserve. That's human love. That's the common love we've grown up to understand as love. But First John 3, one says, Behold, what foreign kind of love... Has the Father bestowed upon us? This foreign kind of love thinks backwards to the world's kind of love. It loves its enemies. It does good to those who hate him. It gives his life up for the ungodly to save and to deliver and to rescue. If you just love those that love you, what reward have you? What makes you different than the world? Don't even the tax collectors do the same? That was not a compliment. If you just greet your brethren only, what do you do more than others or than the world? Don't even the tax collectors do the same? And this is the verse that brought me to my knees. Therefore you shall be perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect. John fifteen thirteen. Jesus said, No greater love does a man have than he should lay his life down for his friends. This is the love that God shone forth that began on that first Christmas that we celebrate as that Christmas. This is the love that God had for people that were hurting that walked among us for 33 years and for three and a half years wherever there was hurting and people came to him hurting. He was compassionate and gracious. He never turned anybody away. The only people he turned away were those people that didn't think they needed him. The religious people. Because they thought they'd done everything right. Because they saw, saw the outward fruit that they put on themselves and thought that therefore their hearts were right. And Jesus said to them, you don't need a physician. Only the sick people need a physician. It wasn't that they didn't need him. They didn't face that they needed him because they were satisfied in what they were in themselves. This love walked among us as a man and ministered for three and a half years. Anybody that came to him that was sick and asked for healing, he never turned anybody away. There was one time when he was so tired and exhausted, he pulled away on the top of a mountain to pray and get refreshed and the crowd came to him and they were hurting and he went down and ministered to them again. And then at the point of time, he gave his life for them. What power, what force could cause somebody to lay down on a wooden cross and allow Roman officers to drive nails in his hands and his feet and say, Father, forgive them because they don't know what they're doing. What foreign type of love is this? Well, it's the love that he came to bring to the world even to those that would never accept Him. He didn't do it based on how people would respond. He did it because that's what His nature is. It's love. And that's the love we've come to receive and to celebrate at this time of year. And that's the love that's been poured out into your heart when the Holy Spirit came to live in you. That love, all of that love, is in you right now. All of God's love for you, we've talked about over these last two Sundays, is in you right now. So, well, Pastor, how do I experience it? First of all, you've got to admit you need it. And then start giving some of it away. Pull the plug off of it and let some of it out. And as you begin to let it out, you don't exhaust it. The more flows out of you, the more flows into you. And the more it gives away, the more it expands in you until eventually you will answer Paul's prayer in Ephesians 3. And this is what we're going to end with. Father, strengthen us by your Spirit in our inner man that Christ in all his fullness might dwell in in us that being rooted and grounded in this kind of love this foreign kind of love we may together come to know the breadth that has no end the length that has no end the height that has no end and the depth that has no end oh, the love of Christ the love of God that's been given to us in Christ Jesus now unto him that we may be filled up with all of your fullness now unto him who's able to do exceedingly abundantly beyond all we can ask or think according to the power that's already at work in us may be glory unto you in all your church amen and amen